If you have your scriptures, turn in them to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to read a familiar parable uh, about the treasure that is hidden in the field and the parable of the pearl uh, of great price. And so uh, it's in chapter 13, verse 44, and if you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed conveniently printed in your Bible, or in your uh, bulletin, pardon me. Now hear uh, God's word. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is God's word. We've been talking about the parables, and it's important, I want to reiterate, that uh, Jesus, 35, at least 35% of what Jesus said uh, that we have recorded uh, was in the form of parables. And so it's incumbent upon us, I think, to take a look at these parables uh, from time to time. We're going to spend a couple of months in the parables, and then I hope that throughout the year, uh, as, as time allows, I can maybe put one or two more in as we go through the year. It's important to look at these because many scholars have said in order to understand Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to Him and you believe in Him and in following Him, to understand Him, you have to understand the parables. It's also been said that to understand the parables, you have to understand Jesus because the parables are unique in that they are connected intimately to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The parables are not simply uh, moral or ethical lessons. They're far, far more than that. And they explain who He is, what He came to do, and what it's going to mean for us to be followers of Jesus. And the first few weeks, we looked at the key parable, which Jesus said, if you understand this one, if you get, it, if you get this one, this is the key to all parables. And that is the parable of the sower and the seed and the different soils. And you can look at that in Mark chapter 4 or earlier in this chapter of Matthew 13. And what Jesus says and which astonished people and why so many in His day were conflicted about whether or not He was truly the Messiah was because of the message of these parables. See, they expected an earthly king. They expected a warrior to come and create armies and go out and defeat the Romans and defeat all the infidels, all the ungodly, and destroy them off of the earth and establish an earthly heavenly kingdom in Jerusalem uh, and sit on the throne of David, uh, the father of the kings. This was the idea. And so Jesus starts saying things like the kingdom of heaven is like a sower who went out to sow. And he tells these stories and people are going, yeah, I, I, I get the story. I understand what you're saying, but I don't really understand. And he said himself, this is going to fulfill the, the uh, prophecy of Isaiah that says they're going to have eyes, but they're not going to see. They're going to have ears, but they're not going to hear. They're not going to understand. See, they understood the meaning. They didn't understand. Why was he doing it? What, what is going on? And Jesus said, no warrior, a farmer, no armies, seed. 
And growth is not going to be by a military overthrow and political upheaval and me taking over the world and establishing some political entity. Not now at least. It's going to be the slow growth of agriculture. It's going to be in weakness, in time. The way seeds grow. It's going to be in deep dependence upon God and His sovereignty. Him sending the rain and us trusting Him that the seed will sprout and bring forth fruit. And our faithfulness to listen to God and do what He tells us and trust Him. And people found this to be very, very conflicting. And honestly, folks, it's no different today in the 21st century. We still struggle. The church in America wants political power. It does. It sells its soul to get political power. And I have been telling you for a year that this is going to come back on us and we are going to rue the day. Not that we shouldn't be involved in politics, but we can't put our, our treasure there. We can't find our pearl of great price there. And if we do, we're going to be sadly disappointed. Last week we looked at Jesus' sermon about the rock and the sand and building on the foundation. And I told you, everybody's building something. We're all building And so Jesus is telling us, you'd better build on the kingdom of God and on me and not build on anything else. Build on me first, lay the foundation there, dig down deep, lay a strong foundation, and then build everything else. Your marriage, your career, your family, your hopes, your dreams, even your religion. Any other foundation will turn against you. Any other foundation will erode and go away and leave you in the flood. Leave you in the chaos. And how many of us have experienced that? I think all of us have at some point or another. We've got to build on the rock. And this week he says, here's, here's the way to find your true treasure, your true value, your true meaning. And so let's look under it, at it this morning under these three headings. Maybe this will help you. It's just a little outline. First, the, the whole idea of finding and being found. Finding and being found. Secondly, facing, honestly facing, the cost of discipleship. Looking at it and facing it, being honest about what it's going to cost. And then finally, finding our, our true treasure. So finding and being found, facing the cost of discipleship, and finding our true treasure. Okay, first of all, Finding and being found. If you look, uh, all, all of the, the commentators that I read said these two parables form a pair. They're only found in Matthew and they belong together. And so there's no point in separating them and taking them as, as different things. And, and the commentators all agree. So I'm going to treat them as, as the same, having basically the same message with a couple of, of little nuances that we will look at. Treasure is hidden in a field and then found by somebody. We don't know who it is. We just know that it's a man. He finds this treasure in a field. We don't know if he's a rich man, poor man, a peasant, a farmer. We don't know if he's a, 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 a peasant laborer who's just uh, digging the field for the, for the owner. We don't know what he is. We don't know anything about him other than he just comes across this all of a sudden, unexpectedly, out of nowhere, he stumbles upon this treasure. He sees it and he gets excited. And then it says he covers it back up. And he goes away and he sells everything he has so that he can go and buy that field. 
Now, maybe you've never thought about this, but why does he cover it up? And, and the reason was this, that rabbinic law required that if anyone found a treasure legally, they were bound to surrender that treasure to the landowner and give it to him. They couldn't keep it for themselves. So rather than keep it for himself, he reburies it. How do you like that? Sounds a little flaky, doesn't it? It's like he's kind of... But that's not the point of the parable. Jesus is saying this man found it and he thought, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to rebury it. I'm going to go sell everything I have. Then I'm going to do legally, I'm going to go back and buy the field so I can have that treasure. Because under rabbinic law, if you bought the, the field and it had a treasure in it, you didn't have to give it back to the previous owner. It was now yours. You got the field and everything in it. And everything in it. Same thing with the pearl, but we'll talk about that in a second. The church fathers, Irenaeus and Augustine and, and, and others following their lead, identify correctly both the treasure, listen now because this is a key to understanding this parable, the treasure and the pearl as Jesus Christ Himself. That He embodies the kingdom. He's both king and the kingdom itself. You see, you don't have a kingdom without a king. And every kingdom's got to have a king. We're very comfortable, I think most people, about talking about God in general. We say God this, God that. We talk about God in general. Uh, Sort of in an abstract way. God, whatever he, she, it is up there. And even if you're a Christian, you might just talk about God a lot. And you you make very little reference uh, to Jesus. Back uh, years ago when we first started the journey, one of the guys in the journey group, who's not a member of our church, uh, but a wonderful brother in the Lord, uh, in one of our journeys, he just blew up and he said, why are you always talking about Jesus? Why can't we just, why do we have to bring up Jesus all the time? Why can't you just talk about God? And I told this brother, I said, look, whatever God is, I have no way of relating to Him. I have no way of understanding Him unless He makes Himself known to me somehow. I just don't. And the way He has made Himself known to me is through the incarnation of His Son, Jesus. Now I can, now I can lay hold. Now I can get a hold of that, yes? I mean, I can understand that. Even though it's kind of mind-boggling, His two, you know, two natures, divine and human, and one person, or, you know, one person all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's really too much to take in, but I can at least understand another man. And that's what God intended. He he intended for Jesus to be the intermediary, to be the one that we talk about. The whole role of Holy Spirit coming to the earth, the whole job of the person of the Holy Spirit is to come and make Jesus known. You never see the Holy Spirit exalting Himself except in some aberrations. The Holy Spirit comes and He wants to talk about Jesus. The Father wants to glorify Jesus. We are Trinitarian and we do stand within the bounds of Trinitarianism. But to even understand the Trinity, you have to go from the inside out, from Christ out. That's how you understand. That's how you comprehend. That's how you apprehend. And that's the treasure. The parable, both of them, the the pearl and the uh, uh, treasure found in the field, both of them require... Human responsibility. In fact, almost all of the parables are designed ingeniously by Jesus that they, they bring you to a point of decision. 
Now, I know as Presbyterians and Calvinists, you know, we get a little uncomfortable with that because we believe in predestination. We believe in election. Now, I know those are hard words. They're hard to understand. They're hard to absorb. And, and sadly, many people that believe in those doctrines, uh, I happen to be one of them, predestination and election, and the sovereignty of God, we tend to go along the continuum more towards fatalism than we really do towards what is called sovereignty of God. We really believe in, in, in fatalism. Whatever God's going to do, it's just out there somewhere in an ethereal way. It's just His will. And so you're a Christian saying, well, if it's God, I'll, I'll see you later. Well, if it's God's will, I'll see you. Like, what, what are we doing? Or what, what, what do we mean by that? I always want to ask people, what do you mean by that? When you say, I'll see you later if it's God's will. What do you mean? And the, the folks will quote the Scripture saying, you know, that uh, I think it's in James where James says, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you think you're supposed to go do this or that, you should first ask God's will, which had nothing to do with decision making. If you read James carefully in the context, what he's talking about is humility. He's not talking about decision making. So what is going on here? What does it mean to find the treasure? To find it means God is calling you to action. He's calling you to take a step of faith and do something. And in this case, he's saying what you do is you sell everything you have and you lay hold of that treasure because without that, you have nothing. You see, moth and rust are going to come in and corrupt whatever you have. Someday you're going to die. And the, the wisdom writers in the Bible said, someday you're going to die. And who knows where all your stuff's going to go. We think it's going to go to our children or maybe to somewhere else. But, you know, what are they going to do? The, the writers, the wisdom writers said, what are they going to do with it? You worked hard to get it. Maybe they'll squander it. Right? I know I'm not giving anything to my kids. I will until, you know, I'm out of the nursing home and in the mortuary, but not... Be well, you get the idea. We, we do want to leave something to our children, of course. Uh, uh, we want to leave an inheritance, but... The idea is that when you die, who knows what's going to happen after that? You lose. And you, naked you come and naked you go. And so therefore, we are to find our, our value in something else. And the finding requires action on our part. What about being found? Finding, being found. Being found, so that's human responsibility. We've got to do something with these parables. They're not just out there saying nothing. They're saying something, and we have to act on them. All right, you with me? Human responsibility. But on the other hand, the sovereignty of God is very powerfully present in these parables, both of them, the pearl and the treasure, because neither man puts the treasure there or puts the pearl there or has anything to do with the treasure or the pearl. God, in, in the mystery of His providence, is behind the scenes and somehow sees to it that the treasure is in the field for the man to find and the pearl is in the oyster for the merchant to find. They are meant to be found. God has something behind the scenes. There is sovereignty there along with our human responsibility. And listen, folks, the Scripture never, never resolves human responsibility and God's sovereignty. 
And in the church, one of the things that pastorally that us as elders have to do is constantly be shifting not only the balance in our own life, but we've got to work with you all too. Because you can get too far to the human side and think it's all about what you do, or you can get too far about uh, over onto the, resp- the sovereignty of God's side and become uh, a, basically a, a Muslim. Inshallah. Whatever God wills. And just throw it up to fate. And, and Christianity is, no, is not on that continuum. Christianity is up above that. 100% God's sovereignty. 100% human responsibility. And the creature... You don't see either one of these guys scratching their head and going, gosh, I wonder where that treasure comes from. Well, maybe I better talk to a theologian before I rebury it. No, they just take it and go. And they, and they make their decisions based on the value... Listen... They make their decision based on the value of the treasure. It inherently, intrinsically, is worth something. And that brings us to the second point, facing the cost. So you've got human responsibility clearly displayed, God's sovereignty clearly displayed, and both are there, and you're supposed to act, sell all that you have and follow me, Jesus said. What is the cost of discipleship? It says this, look at the text, it's very, very clear. In his joy, the man who finds the treasure, in his joy he sells all and buys, and the merchant, seeing the pearl of great price, the finest of pearls, he sells all he has to buy that pearl. So the value of the, of the treasure, the pearl, is the thing that motivates the action on our part. Listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you know his famous quote, but I want to read you the whole paragraph because if you don't see the context, you don't really get uh, the meaning of this very famous and familiar quote. Listen carefully. Bonhoeffer uh, quotes uh, from Isaiah 53 this. He says, He was despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. Talking about Jesus. Now here Bonhoeffer, what he has to say, he's going to comment on that. This is fascinating. Listen. That is an essential quality of the suffering of the cross. You hear this? Being despised and rejected, being despised and rejected is an essential quality of the suffering of the cross. It's not getting cancer. It's not some of the suffering, you know, our bank account doesn't have any money in it, so we're suffering for Jesus. No. He's talking about because we are followers of Jesus, we are being despised and rejected. People are not not necessarily favorable towards us the same way they were not favorable towards Him. Listen. That is an essential quality of the suffering of the cross. But this notion has... My God, was Bonhoeffer prophesying here. Listen, this notion has ceased to be intelligible to a Christianity which can no longer see any difference between an ordinary human life and a life committed to Jesus. See, most of us... And this is a great danger, folks, in the United States. It costs us nothing. Zero to be a Christian. Nothing. Some, yeah, but 
generally we, we don't experience anything like what Jesus is talking about in this parable or, or what we studied in 1 Peter back some months ago. We went through the whole book of 1 Peter and suffering for Christ and we don't get it today and so you've got to work. Listen, Christ the King family, listen, you've got to work at this because generally it's easy to be a Christian in America. Listen to what he says. We don't see any difference between ordinary people and Christians or life committed to Christ. The cross means, here's what the cross means. Here's what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. The cross means sharing the suffering of Christ to the last and to the fullest. Only a man thus totally committed in discipleship can experience the meaning of the cross. The cross is there right from the beginning. The man has to get it, pick it up. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience, the first one, is a call to abandon the attachments of this world. We surrender ourselves to Christ in union with His death. We give our lives over to death. That's the first step to a Christian's life is dying. We give our lives over to death when Christ calls a man. Here's the quote we all know. When Christ calls a man, He bids him, Come and die. Come and die. Now, probably less than a mile from here is the biggest church in El Paso, and it's packed this morning. It's packed. And the reason is because nobody's going to say what I just said. They're just not. Very unpopular. And I'm sorry, maybe some of you won't come back next week. Please come back. Please. No, think about it. When Christ calls us, He says, you want to follow Me? Come and die. Come and give it up. Give it all up. Every last drop. Will you do it? Will you give it? Not to pay for, not to pay for your salvation. He is not taught. Grace, look folks, grace is free. Everyone agree with that? Can you all agree? Say amen. Amen. Grace is free. You cannot buy Christ. You can't buy this treasure, this salvation. You can't buy. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And let me, let me be very blunt, folks. Kingdom life is not free. It is not free. It was never offered freely. He said, you want to follow me? Give all that you have and follow me. When he told the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and follow me, we conveniently, and I've heard sermons like this, good sermons actually, that contextualize that and say, well, he was just talking to that one man because that was his idol. No, no, no. That's not what you read in the New Testament. Jesus always says, everybody sell everything you have and follow me. Give it all up. You ready for that? You ready for that garage sale? See, we talk about, well, how much does God want me to give to the church? Does He want me to give a tithe? Yes, we want your tithe. We want your 10%. But that's not what the New Testament is talking about. You don't hear anything in the, in the New Testament about tithing. You have to give 100%. 100%. In other words, when you look at your bank account, you say, you know, this is God's money. I see that. I believe that. And you are ready, ready to go, ready to get, ready to be generous 
Not out of your excess, but out of, out of your very life. If necessary, if He calls you that way, give it all. Will you? And that's something that each person has to struggle with. Me included. I'm a pastor. I'm a professional holy person. And I have to struggle with this myself. God's touching the very deepest part of our humanity, folks. Do you see it? He's going down into the very center and He's saying, What is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires, listen, this is the paradox of the gospel. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loves life or loses life for my sake and the gospels will save it. This is the paradox. This is the tension of being a Christian. And persecution and troubles and when sorrows come, when the sto- like last week, the storm comes, the flood, the torrent comes into our lives, whatever it may be, you can see very quickly the way Christians will struggle, they will fight, they will, they will sometimes cry out and lament to God. They will ask Him, why? What are you doing? I don't understand. But they don't give up on Him. They don't quit Him. They stay in the struggle. They don't become uh, uh, lackadaisical and complacent and say, oh, inshallah, that's God's will. That's the worst thing you can do. Well, it's just God's will. No. Get in and wrestle with Him. Don't back away into uh, some kind of fatalism and certainly don't run away from Him. What are you going to find out there other than the abyss? No, He says, run to Me. Come to Me. Struggle. Read the Psalms. They're full of laments. And complaints. And how long are you going to do this? But you see who you're talking to. Do you see who you're engaged with? Most important in our Christian life. Both men find, listen, both men find, one finds unexpectedly, the other, he's out there looking. He's, He's trying to find that pearl. Both found. One found the treasure and the pearl Not by their own doing. That's God's sovereignty. Both require action to obtain human responsibility. And so the Apostle Paul starts to put all the pieces together for us as well as Jesus. And Paul says this, you were dead. This is what he's saying to us. Listen carefully. And I know this is a lot to take in. It's early in the morning, but I'm hoping that you all contract because if you do, this kind of thing can break the chains of slavery of sin in your life. Think about it. You were dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. See, he said, we thought we were alive, but we were really dead. But in order to get life, we had to really die. We had to actually lose our old life. Paul goes on to say this, I've been crucified with Christ. See? I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is that parable. Paul is just explaining it in a little different way. He's saying that to come to Jesus... You have to die. You've got to sell everything. You've got to let go of your life. Completely let go. 
in order to embrace Jesus Christ, folks, it takes both hands. You can't hold Jesus. You can't hold somebody that grand, that glorious, that that good and beautiful. You can't possibly hold Him with one hand, which is what a lot of Christians want to do. We want to hold Jesus with one hand and hold on to everything else with the other and somehow just fit them together. And I'm telling you, they won't go together. He demands that we let go. I don't know what that looks like in your life. I know what it looks like in my life. It is daily struggling to let go. It's daily working at letting go. Minute by minute sometimes, letting go. Because to hold Him, hold someone so beautiful, so grand, it's going to take both hands. So He's not asking us to pay for the salvation that we get. No, no, no. That's not the treasure. The treasure is being a follower of Jesus. Being in the kingdom with Him. Come and follow Me. Take up your cross. Die. Die if you have to. Die, you must. You see? Wow. Finding our true treasure. Let's finish with this. In His joy, finding the one pearl of great price. Both phrases in one for the for the guy that just finds accidentally one for the merchant that's out there searching for good pearls both of them find the value in the thing itself they don't ascribe value to it it has value already it's already worth it and they through the Holy Spirit, through the moving of the Holy Spirit we believe in God's sovereignty He's the one that opens our eyes, yes they see the value. They recognize it. They, they comprehend what it is. And they say, I can't live without this. Jesus taught this in other places. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, thieves break in and steal. Lay up for your treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt, the thieves can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. And this is something that you do daily, folks. As we struggle in our lives and we find value in things and things are competing for our desires. And parents, with your children, your kids are bombarded with consumerism and materialism. As they're bombarded with these things, great, okay. Let's all be asking the question, children, adults, all of us, old, young, where is my true value? What causes me to stay awake at night? What am I afraid of? And there you will find your treasure. Paul said, What things were gained to me, I counted loss for Christ. Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom, listen to this, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but dung. If I read it to you in Greek, you would all want me to be fired. Because he doesn't say dung. He uses the crassest word in the Greek language, Koine Greek, that he can find. We all are familiar with it. And he uses that word, a dirty word, to describe what he thought of his past life. It was rubbish. It was dung. Wow, that's the Apostle Paul. 
Many of you have, have suggested a piece from uh, Dr. Thomas Chalmers, uh, Scottish uh, uh, minister uh, in, uh, from Scotland back, he's long dead, called uh, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now you can find this online and I hope many of you will download it maybe today if you have time. Download his sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's, it's magnificent. And uh, I wish I had more time to talk about it. But this is just a little piece from the expulsive power of a new affection. Listen to what Chalmers says. The gospel of Jesus Christ is expulsive in its power. Expulsive. It expels lesser treasures. It awakens a new appetite, a new affection, a new sense, a new taste, a new longing in the heart that nothing but Jesus can fill. And that longing and that delight in Christ expels every other rival. You see, if all you do in your Christian life is constantly try, what do I have to do? What do I have to get rid of? What do I have to expel? What do I have to throw away? Uh, What do I have to rid myself of? Christianity is going to grind you down into into the ground. But... If you find the treasure, if you find the pearl, if you find that thing of exceedingly great value, what Chalmers calls that new affection, that other thing, that other treasure, then it in itself, the the joy that the man found in finding the treasure, the joy of finding it, the pearl of great price, the merchant looks at it and he goes, Mike, This is amazing. You see, they find it in the thing itself. And that love, that affection, has the power to drive out. You're not just throwing things off. You're pushing out the other things. And without that, folks, Christianity is horrible. It is one of the worst religions. Better to be something else. But if you want to be a Christian and you want your Christianity to just beat like a heart and be alive and vibrant even when you're suffering, even when you're going through trials, even when there's no money in the bank, even when your marriage is in trouble. If you have that one treasure, it can start to push and drive other things out along with our effort to throw off the bad as well. It is the value of the treasure, the pearl, and, listen, and the joy of discovery that moves these men to action, meeting Jesus, finding in Him, like Augustine and Irenaeus, finding in Jesus Christ that irresistible, priceless treasure, a beauty that you can't live without, finding your life there. Why does Jesus even share this parable? And I'll just tell you this and we'll close. I say it every week, folks, but I'm going to say it again. No other treasure, no other treasure in your life is going to die for you. Not one of them. No treasure will die for you. No treasure will give its life for you. No treasure will give everything for you. Though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. He emptied himself, Paul said. He became 
nothing. Nothing like R.C. Sproul says, nothing is not a little something. Nothing is nothing. He became nothing. He became a slave, a servant. No treasure will die for you. Nothing that you're basing your life on, nothing that you're holding on to and clutching to so tightly that you think, this is what makes me. This is what's going to get me over. This is what's going to put me over the hurdle. This is what's going to define me. Someday it's going to be gone. Only He remains. Only He is that treasure. Only He is that pearl of great price who actually dies for you and for me. God demonstrates His love for us. Listen, while we were yet sinners, on our worst day, folks, you haven't had a worse day than that. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. There, He says, this is what you're worth. Think of your life. This, you want to define yourself by your career, your money, your bank account, your marriage, your kids, whatever. No, no, no. He says, here's here's a value. Here's something you can put up against anything else in life. Here's how much. Here's the quantity, quality, whatever you want to call it. This is the degree to which I will love you. This is the way I love you. However you you want to describe it. The value that I hold you, Jesus is saying to you, on your worst day, while you are a sinner, while you are ungodly, I died for you. Every day after that, you live in life, in victory, even when you sin, even when you fall back, even when you do the wrong things. He never moves. He stays right there. That is the pearl of great price. That's the one. You find that treasure and you never lose. You're never moved. Your life is on a rock. And you will grow. You will produce fruit. It takes a lifetime. That's what he meant. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, um, we, we struggle sometimes to even believe this. I know for myself, sometimes I don't even believe that you love me. I can't because my treasure is really myself and my reputation. And I pray, Father, that today as we think through these things, they're, they're wonderful truths that somehow you would break through by your Holy Spirit and, and let us just get a glimpse, a little taste of how much you believe that we're worth, that you would give your life for us, us poor sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore, having nothing to commend ourselves. And yet you come and you find beauty in us And then give us yourself the great treasure. Please help us. Please. We need you. And we need you to change our lives. Amen.